information that you receive on Exclusively Inclusive Podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition, the specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. I, I truly feel like my clients are the authority over their their gender. I'm not the authority on who, who my clients are. It's my clients yeah. that have the authority over who they are. I think a lot of times people forget that they need to protect their own mental health, especially people when they're talking about their parents. They feel bad about how their parents feel about their transition, but in reality, they need to put themselves first and protect their own mental health. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive. Your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Erin Everett. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Erin Everett. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Katie Lycom, who's a LCSW gender therapist and LGBTQIA specialist. Katie's actually local to the Atlanta Decatur area and specializes in more than just gender therapy. She also specializes in anxiety and depression. Uh, loved ones of transgender clients can reach out to her to help them navigate uh, a person's transition. She also offers secular therapy, also, of course, gender therapy, and also relationship counseling. Currently, Katie is providing online distance counseling, too, to make sure that her clients feel safe during the global pandemic. So without further ado, I would love to talk to you guys more about Katie and let her explain everything that she's into and everything that she can provide to the gender community. All right. Welcome to the show, Katie. I'm so excited to have you on. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. So before we get started, would you mind just introducing yourself a little bit, letting us know what your preferred pronouns are and kind of uh, what all your title means? Sure. So I'm Katie Lycom. I'm a licensed clinical social worker in Georgia and a licensed independent social worker, clinical practitioner in South Carolina. I'm also licensed in North Carolina and Florida. And um, my pronouns are she and her. I have a private practice in Decatur, Georgia, and I see clients who are part of the LGBTQ and transgender community. Um, WPATH GEI Standards of Care Version 7 Certified. And I work a lot with clients who are exploring their gender, transitioning, as well as anxiety, relationship stress, and religious trauma. And a licensed an LCSW is a licensed clinical social worker. So um, it's a I'm a therapist. I have my master's degree in social work and then an additional three years of supervised training to get my licensure. That's awesome. And I didn't realize you were serving so many different states. That's awesome. Does that mean that clients travel to you or are you doing online uh, sessions? I do video sessions in the other states. And I just got licensed in North Carolina like day before yesterday. So, Ooh, congrats. <laughs> That's awesome, though. Thank 
you. Yeah, because I know that's important because technically it's just like, uh, well, pre-pandemic, I'm not allowed to do telehealth visits with people who have an out-of-state address. Is that the same for you unless you're certified there or licensed there rather? Yeah, that's the, that's the same for me. Yeah, so that's So good. I had a client. Yeah, I had a client that moved from South Carolina to North Carolina. So I had to get my license in North Carolina to continue seeing them. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That, what an advocate <laughs> for you to be able to do that for them so yeah. that you could continue care with them. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm, you know, it's the same for us. But now with the pandemic going on, we're allowed to see clients out of state. And so now we're kind of figuring out, I wonder what the Georgia Medical Board is going to do after this. And if they're going to continue to allow us to do that with like a face-to-face visit every six months or something. It's going to be interesting. So we're navigating that process as well. But yeah, so I guess that, you know, a good place to start would be like, you know, you offer a lot of different services. And I've tried to emphasize that too in your introduction. It's not just about gender therapy with you, but it is obviously one of your main focuses. But if you were a patient looking for a gender therapist, what tips would you have for them to like kind of vet out or screen their therapist to make sure that they were actually affirming? Yeah. So some tips I have is when you first reach out to a therapist, I mean, the first step I would have is to read their website and make sure that they mention the trans community Mm -hmm. and not just in passing. It'd be great if they had a page dedicated to working with the LGBTQ and trans community um, Mm -hmm. instead of just a little blurb, um, but a whole page. And I know a lot of people find therapists through psychology today. So also on psychology today. You can filter by the word transgender, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people, a lot of people click that they work with the transgender community, but they don't mention it in their profile. So I would look for somebody who mentions it in their paragraph in their profile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point because a lot of people will just click who they're inclusive for, but if they're actually wanting to tailor care to them, they're gonna they're gonna have a write up about it. Right. Yeah. Right. So definitely, definitely look for the write-up. Mm-hmm. And then when you're, when you first email somebody, you know, I would ask, you know, how many people have you worked with that are part of the trans community or do you support informed consent? That's a really big one because I think a lot of therapists are still stuck on the WPATH um, standards of care version six where mm-hmm. they think that you need to be in therapy for six months before you get a hormone letter or things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think really screening your gender therapist to make sure that they support informed consent and if they do write letters that it's the shortest amount of time possible yeah. of sessions. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure that varies based on each client. So, you know, you're definitely going to probably receive clients who are just now at first exploring their gender identity and others who are like, I've been feeling this way since the beginning of time. What's my next steps? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so when you say support informed consent is, uh, are you also delivering informed consent or do you mean when they land in a provider care setting? Um, when I say in support informed consent, I just mean that when you're looking for a therapist, you want to find somebody that's not so stuck on the fact that you need a letter for hormones and that they would refer you to an informed consent clinic as well as a clinic that still requires a letter. 
Okay. Yeah. I think that's important too, because often when I first, you know, establish care with a, uh, with a patient, one of the things I ask them, and I ask everybody this, but uh, particularly those in the gender community, because I feel like there's less support for them through their family and friend network overall, is if they have established care with a mental health care provider. And a lot of them are, look at me sometimes in a little bit of fear, like, wait, I thought you did informed consent. I'm like, I do, but I still think that that relationship is really important. And I tell them it's less about diagnoses. It's more about like transitional support and having like a safe space to talk about things. And so then it's kind of like, whew, you know, you can see a load off. And then they're more willing to establish care with mental health care. Because I think sometimes they are afraid that they're going to find a therapist who's going to make them jump through multiple hoops and kind of prove their gender identity over several months of uh, therapy. And so sometimes when they come directly to me and then I refer to you, they're they're going with a different outlook of like, okay, this is actually something that I'm going to benefit from and not feel like I once again have to defend myself. Right. And I think that's a really big thing. I think I say on my website and my about me is that, you know, I truly feel like my clients are the authority over their their gender. Mm -hmm. Um. I'm not I'm not the authority on who who my clients are. It's my clients yeah. that have the authority over who they are. Yeah, you do say that. Actually, one of the things that you say is most importantly through all my training, I believe when a person tells me that they are transgender or gender expansive, I believe them. So, I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Some of the questions that people have surrounding establishing care with a gender therapist are like, so if I establish care with Katie, do I just have to talk about my gender or does she manage other mental health care issues? How would you address that for somebody? Um, well, with myself, I would say I definitely manage other mental health care issues. I find that a lot of my clients have anxiety. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the things that I find that clients have um, social anxiety. So a lot of what we talk about is social anxiety. Mm-hmm. We talk about depression, difficulty with family members. I work with clients who have autism. So we can talk, we talk about um, executive functioning and um, just daily living mm-hmm. skills. It's just, it's not just um, coming to therapy isn't it just about, I think I'm transgender. This is what I think about it. Coming to therapy is also I'm a whole person, mm-hmm. and as a whole person, I also have things like anxiety or depression or mm-hmm. just general um, general life life things I want to talk about. Yeah, 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 that's important. That's kind of how I approach my patients, too, when um, wondering if they are establishing for just hormone or primary care because it's I try to take care of the whole person. And I think sometimes they're shocked by the attention to detail that we offer by going through their previous medical history and all those kinds of things. It's like, no, it's not just about your hormones. It's about all of you. You know, you're not just, you know, a trans woman or a trans man. Like you're more than that. Um, and I think that's really important too, to find a therapist like yourself that also manages them that way too. Right. Definitely. And, and also when I, when I refer my clients to, a doctor, like when I refer them to you, you know, it's really important. I'm like, this this doctor, you know, can be your primary care physician as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's also someone that you can go to when you have a cold or sinus infection or, yeah. um, you know, you can get your whole body treated. Right. And especially with the current changes in some of the legislation that we've had 
I think that's really important that people can get like full service health care at our clinic in a safe space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you touched on taking care of clients with religious trauma and autism. Would you mind expanding on that? Yeah, sure. So I I went to the Philly Trans Health Conference a few years ago mm-hmm. and I saw a presentation on religious trauma and it really spoke to me. I personally was raised Southern Baptist, and um, now I'm a secular therapist. I'm registered with the Secular Therapist Network, which mm-hmm. is a great resource. If you're looking for a secular therapist, you can go and search mm-hmm. by your state. And then I started training other therapists. I teach a continuing education class about religious trauma and gender identity. But I found that a lot of people might, you know, I've got clients that might have been raised independent Mm -hmm. Baptist or Catholic and Mm -hmm. their family members just are not affirming to them, you know, Mm -hmm. and they hear things like, you know, you're going to hell, Mm your, your God doesn't love you because you're trans or or Mm -hmm. because you're part of the LGBTQ community. And it really creates a lot of, I'd say the three things it creates is isolation, condemnation, and abomination. Mm -hmm. So these feelings, that people that bubble up in people when they um, were raised in a religion that is, doesn't isn't supportive of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that is so right, and even especially for people who really value their family's opinions, and that's really hard for them to move past that to not have that level of acceptance just because it's religious based. Right, definitely. Um, you know, I, I, I see clients who, you know, I say that all, I've never met a child or, and, and everyone's a child. I don't, I don't mean child. I mean a mm-hmm. person with a parent. Mm-hmm. I've never met someone that didn't really want their parents' approval. <laughs> right. So all of my clients in some aspect want their parents' approval and mm-hmm. love and belongingness. Mm-hmm. So if, they're not getting that love and belongingness from their parents, especially if it's religious based. It's it's really hurtful, hurtful mm-hmm. to my clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. It's just ingrained in us. And that's part of the reason why children are so vulnerable and susceptible to abuse because they're constantly seeking acceptance from their abusers usually as well. And a lot of people don't understand that what you're talking about, religious trauma can be classified under that as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, um, that's awesome because I actually encounter a lot of patients who, who struggle with that too. And to have somebody specialized in helping them heal those wounds is really important because not a lot of therapists are really talking about that in general. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, in my sessions, a lot of people have, you know, we talk about things where people have left the church and their whole belief system has changed mm-hmm. because they're being told that you know, who they are is not correct and Mm -hmm. isn't in line with their, with their higher power. And we talk about that and we talk about whether or not they want to go back to the church. And, Mm -hmm. and there are affirming churches in Atlanta Mm -hmm. and um, throughout the USA. There's several congregations that I do refer people to if they decide that they really are religious. They were just raised in the in the wrong church, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so I don't I don't try to steer people 
away from being spiritual if that's what they want to do. I just try to help them recover from how they were raised. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you try to meet them where they're at and uh, help them achieve their goals. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, Oh, cool. And so you also do a lot of work in the community when it pertains to autism and some of the social anxiety issues. And it's not just for helping those patients, too. You also do other education to therapists. Is that right? Yeah, I teach continuing education to therapists about people who um, are working with their gender identity, people who are transgender and also have autism and how that presents itself. And um, a lot of what we see or what I see is maybe a therapist or um, someone will say or doctor Mm -hmm. will say, well, if they if they have autism, then maybe being transgender is a is an autistic um, like just something that they're stuck on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're not really they're not really transgender. It's just part of their autism hmm. that they're um, they're kind of ruminating on this. Mm. Which, of course, I don't believe in. Right. So a lot of it is education to other therapists and education to the medical profession that you can have autism and be transgender and have fully thought out thoughts Mm -hmm. of who you are and know your identity. So that's interesting. So why do you think that people form that opinion of people diagnosed with autism versus people with anxiety who also ruminate? You know, I... I think it's because at least, especially when I talk to parents, I will have parents who say, oh, you know, last year they were stuck on wanting a cat as a pet. And they thought about that for a whole year. And that's all they thought about. And so I think this year, this is just what they're stuck on. Mm. So next year, it'll be something different. Mm. And, and I, you know, I've had parents who have said things like that. Um, to me about their kids with autism. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just because they have this previous experience with their children Mm -hmm. and they don't understand that identity is, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a big difference between wanting a cat and who you are as a person. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You know, (laughs) and um, so these, some of the parents just don't understand that this is this is an intrinsic part of who who these children are. It's not just something else that they're interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's because people who aren't really struggling with dysphoria or gender identity, they're not they're not ruminating on those things. They're not talking about it. They're not thinking about it. It's not on their mind. They might be thinking of other reasons that make them feel uncomfortable in their body, but it usually doesn't pertain to their gender. There's obviously different types of body dysmorphia that people might obsess over. But um, if you're not actually entertaining your gender, it's not something that people think about. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, And that's something that I think especially parents don't understand because parents are saying, um, you know, I've had I've had parents before say that, well, when I was a teenager, I didn't really like my breasts. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a little confused. I, I didn't like them. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is just a phase. Mm-hmm. Because as people, I think we try and, well, honestly, I think we try to make things about ourselves. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. So when when someone tells us something about themselves, we automatically think about our lives and try and find sameness. But a parent who doesn't have gender dysphoria, it's just so difficult for them to recognize what their child is experiencing when they just didn't go through the same thing. Right, right. Um, And I was going to say, you know, and we talk about those at at several, I don't know if you've ever gone to the Fenway Transgender um, Excellence Conference. It's a wonderful conference. I haven't. I haven't done Fenway. I haven't been to Fenway. I highly recommend it. so many, but not Fenway. Yeah. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's a great conference. And actually, the part of the reason why I liked it so much is because there were more people from the community actually speaking rather than just um, my experience with other conferences where a lot of the people were cis, which nothing against mm-hmm. cis people, but I want to hear from the community, you know. But one of the topics that they talked about was implicit bias and how we all do that. And I think that's, you know, parents are doing that too, implicit bias. They're putting their own personal experiences into the care of their child uh, rather than separating themselves from it. And as providers, whether you're a mental health care provider or a health care provider, we have to be more um, aware of that so that we don't do that to our, our patients and our clients. But as parents, we're not really aware of that. It's not like you unless you really seek it out, people don't go to conferences on parenting and how to be a better parent and, and put away those biases, you know? So I think that's part of it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, implicit bias is huge. Mm -hmm. It's, it's absolutely huge. And then even, even me as a, as a practitioner, you know, I'm a cisgender practitioner. I have to put away my implicit bias. I can't think, well, you know, when I was growing up, it wasn't like this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, you have to, you have to put it on a table. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so, you know, we keep talking about how you're also talking to parents. So what age ranges of clients do you see? Generally, I start seeing teenagers when they're around 13, but I've recently started opening up my practice to kids who, I, I put it this way, I say, as long as they can have conversational therapy. Mm-hmm. And don't need play therapy. So I've seen um, children as young as nine or ten mm-hmm. um, here recently because it's harder to find a gender specialist for elementary school kids mm-hmm. in Atlanta. Um, so I've tried to open up my practice a little, a little, little younger. Mm-hmm. But generally, I see um, teenagers starting around age thirteen, and I see adults as well. Um, it just tends that uh, my clients are between 13 and maybe 35. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so when you have those younger clients, I know it's harder to find a good gender specialist for those age ranges. Are you establishing care also with people who aren't having gender dysphoria? So perhaps younger clients who just need help managing their anxiety or social anxiety? Um, I don't really work with people unless I, the, the last time I, I can't really think of a time mm-hmm. that I've had a cisgender client that wasn't queer mm-hmm. um, unless it was a parent because I do see parents mm-hmm. of kids who are part of the LGBTQ community. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, most of most, all of my clients are, are part of the LGBT, LGBTQ community or transgender. Okay. Awesome. Well, that's good to know as well for any listeners out there that even if their children are cis um, and they're not, that they can still get support.
other thing I wanted to touch on with you too is, you know, I have a lot of patients who have never sought out a therapist or mental health care provider until time for surgery arrives. So, you know, obviously that's an opportunity too for not just you to write a letter, but establish care with clients. What does that kind of look like with you and what kind of process do you walk them through? Yeah. So, um, when it comes to writing surgery letters for clients, um, the first thing I do is write the surgery letter because I don't, I don't ever want to hold, I guess I don't ever want to hold therapy over someone's head in order to get a letter. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that through writing the letter, the client and I will form a connection Mm -hmm. and they will want to continue therapy if they need to. But I do write the letter first. And I'm going to talk about two things. I'll talk about what getting a surgery letter is like, and then I'll also talk about what continuing therapy is after a surgery letter. So the first thing that happens with a surgery letter, there's there's three parts to a surgery letter that I really ask clients. Um, there's the gender dysphoria diagnosis in itself. And to get that gender dysphoria diagnosis, I ask clients about their background, um, which I kind of call it your gender history. So I asked mm-hmm. them to kind of just tell me their story. Um, maybe when they first started exploring their gender, when they first started having thoughts of gender dysphoria and how the gender dysphoria makes them uncomfortable in their lives right now. Um, I always ask people who their emotional support system is while they're transitioning. Mm-hmm. And then We go through um, a mental status exam, which is basically just talking to me about maybe if you have depression or anxiety or panic attacks or things like that. Do you hear or see things that aren't really there? And then we also go over what the surgery is because part of writing a surgery letter is informed consent. So Mm -hmm. I want the clients to know what surgery they're having. Mm-hmm. to have researched it and be able to kind of tell me what's going to happen to their body. And as well as we talk about a recovery plan. So what is recovery going to look like for you? Who's really going to help you when you can't pick up a gallon of milk? You know, how do you know how long you're going to be out of work for? Have you mm-hmm. talked to your bosses mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That is um really important too, because I think, you know, I try to, touch on those things. And mostly it's, I try to talk to them more about like the actual surgical procedure. Um, But I don't always have time to go through everything like, like to the extent that you are, but it's also really important that they're thinking ahead for those things and not just like left in the lurch, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Definitely. And I think it's, it can be therapeutic for people to tell their story to a therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes by the time they get to a surgery letter, they've already, told their story to a therapist before, but it can be um, therapeutic to, to, to just tell your story and then read it back mm-hmm. in a succinct paragraph form to kind of hear who you are and how you got to be where you are. Right. Yeah. Agreed. I do think that that is really important. And in a lot of people, like you said, they don't have that outlet or they don't always even if they've told their story before, they haven't told it in as much detail because, you know, they're always worried that someone might share details. But having that 
safe space where they know that nothing they say to you, unless it's thought of hurting themselves or somebody else, is ever going to like leave that area. I mean, I try and emphasize that to people too. I'm like, when have you ever had a relationship where you could just like sit there and talk all about you and somebody else is going to be like, well, when I felt that way, it's just going to be about you, you know, and you can say whatever you want and no one's going to judge you. And then you get to leave and you get to leave it all there. That alone is therapeutic sometimes, you know? Oh, certainly, certainly. I always, it's funny, sometimes I'll be in there, I'll have a session with a client and they'll just talk and talk and talk and talk mm-hmm. and I can barely get a word in. And at the <laughs> end of the session, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, was this even like, was this even helpful to them? Because I didn't <laughs> say hardly anything. Yeah, and, and, and probably was. <laughs> Yeah, and they'll tell me, they're like, oh my gosh, this was just fantastic. And um, this was so great. And I'm sitting there thinking, I I didn't really do anything. And they're like, this was great. And it's just because people need that space where, Uh like you said, nobody's talking. Like, I don't talk about myself in therapy. I don't take up their time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And that's one of the great things of therapy. Yeah. Yeah, and Ephesians will tell me, well, I it's fine. I don't need a therapist. Uh, I talked to my best friend about it. And I was like, yeah, but when you're talking to your best friend, again, there's that implicit bias. They're not objective. Um, they're going to listen, but then they're also going to, you know, somehow. So even something as simple as talking about, like, losing a pet and you're sad about it, your best friend's still going to be like, oh, I remember when I lost my dog. Yeah, it really sucked. Sorry, you feel that way. Like, it's still going to be about mm-hmm. them to an extent. It's never going to be fully just about you. You know, and so and not only that, I mean, you don't want to burn out your friendships with all of your baggage sometimes. Like You want to be able to, like, talk to a therapist and then use your friendships for actually, like, supporting each other and having fun together and making it more of a positive thing and not a therapeutic relationship. Certainly, certainly. And then also, if my clients are in a partnership or have Mm -hmm. a romantic partner, a lot of times therapy can be great for them because. Either they want to talk about their relationship with their partner and some things that aren't going great, or they just feel like they're overburdening their partner Mm -hmm. um, and they need somebody to talk to that's just not, Mm -hmm. you know, putting their stuff on their partner every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you sometimes don't want to talk about those intimate uh, relationship details with a friend because you don't want them to dislike your partner um, because, again, they're going to be biased, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. And you don't you don't want to say bad things about your partner to your best friend because then they'll not like your partner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's so true. But you also do offer um, relationship counseling as well. Is that right? Yeah, it is. I offer relationship counseling to people who are, you know, maybe lesbian or gay or bisexual or pansexual. Uh-huh. Um, and I also offer relationship counseling if one partner is transitioning um, and the relationship is trying to figure out what that's going to look like throughout the transition of the partner and afterwards, especially if there's children involved or um, just where that relationship is going to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I also often, you know, people, when they're establishing care, they're like, I'm really nervous to tell my boss, my employer, my family, whatever, about their transition, and we'll refer them um, to you to help them kind of navigate that. 
What are some of, I know this is a little bit more of a shift in topic, but it was something that I wanted to ask you about. What are some of the ways that you kind of give tips and tricks on how to come out to family members and and employers? Yeah. So with employers, I tell my clients that there's, there's kind of two avenues to coming out to employers. You can come out to your immediate boss or you can come out to your HR department. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times I ask, Ask clients, what kind of company that do you work for? Is it a small mm-hmm. company? Is it like under 50 employees? Is mm-hmm. it a major corporation? Mm-hmm. Read your employee handbook. Mm-hmm. Um, every every employee handbook has a non-discrimination policy in it. Mm-hmm. And it's optional for employers to add gender identity to a non-discrimination policy. So if an employer has added gender identity to their non-discrimination policies, then that means that they're probably a little bit more affirming than other employers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, That's a good tip. Yeah. So I, I tell my clients to read their employee handbook, read their non-discrimination policy, and kind of figure out whether or not they should go to their um, immediate boss or if they should go to the HR department first. The HR department can help come up with a plan for changing your name in the computer system mm-hmm. or changing your email or when you can change documents. Sometimes companies have, like I had one client recently that their employer sent out a company-wide email mm-hmm. about their transition. And that was, you know, that was my empl- my client's choice and they wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that not everybody has to mm-hmm. put themselves in the spotlight that much. Right, right. Um, that can be nerve-wracking. What, yeah, but that's what, yeah, but that's what my client chose to do and it worked out well for them. And other people just start by telling their coworkers and their boss and their team and, you know, if, if, if they choose to tell other people in a bigger company, then they do that later. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of people kind of broach it that way because their team knows them more intimately and is more supportive rather than going with the whole company base, depending on the size of the company as well. Right. Right. Yeah. It really depends on the size of your company. You know, some companies don't even have an HR department. Right. So some companies, it's it's so small that you really are just telling your boss mm-hmm. and, and the boss might tell the owner of the company. Mm-hmm. Some companies are more affirming than others. Some companies will say, yeah, I'll change your name in the system. Some companies will say, no, it has to be changed on your social security card before we'll change your name in the system. It really just depends on their policies and, and that can be hurtful. Yeah. Um, if they're, if they're more rigid. Yeah, for sure. Hey everyone, I have a quick favor to ask. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just clicking the subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen to my show, that would be wonderful. Not only does it allow you to get notified every time I publish an episode, but it also helps with my ratings and reviews, which what that means in podcast world is that I'm able to climb up in the rating scale and reach other listeners. The whole reason why I started this show is to access people who needed the information. So please just go ahead and click subscribe. Then we can all be happy and continue to listen to this good quality free information. Thank you so much. Have you noticed much of a change in kind of the amount of people reaching out to you now during the pandemic? 
Do you think that's impacted people and their mental health? Um, I do think it has. I've I've had I've certainly had a lot more relationship counseling during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, clients are working from home and they're around their partners and spouses right. 24-7. And they're kind of realizing things about their relationship that they didn't realize before. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're seeking out relationship counseling. I've also had clients who, in the very beginning of the pandemic, I've had clients who might have been um, furloughed or off work mm-hmm. for a few months. Uh, kind of put them on in their own headspace, mm-hmm. and because they were in their own headspace, they started thinking about their own gender identity and came to the conclusion that they were transgender and sought out a sought out a therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that makes sense too to finally have the time to kind of work on yourself, and it's probably something that mm-hmm. um, they've always pushed to the side. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, people just, you know, you live your life and you go through the monotony of the day by day and it's fast paced and you're always moving and people just don't have the time to to think about themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, suddenly the world stops and you're left in your own thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I actually have had a lot of people to reach out because they're working from home now. So they're like, this is the perfect time for me to start my transition uh, hormonally because I'm working from home and I don't have to worry about if um, I'm uncomfortable at work with somebody noticing that I'm getting breasts or facial hair, you know, whatever it may be. So they feel more comfortable now that they can just be at home and some of them are going to be at home indefinitely. Um, Some offices have switched to virtual with no end date right now. And so they're like, this is the perfect time, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so that's been interesting. But I have definitely had more patients um, in the community and those not to reaching out for more mental health services as well for depression, anxiety, um, as it pertains to like COVID and being fearful and social anxiety has gone up. And then you have people who already had underlying, you know, mild agoraphobia. And now they're like being allowed to stay at home all the time. And now they really don't want to leave, you know, and trying yeah. to manage those as well. Definitely. Definitely. Because when you're when you when you're put into a position where you get more comfortable, especially if you have agoraphobia and you're able to stay home, then you you're not your boundaries aren't pushed. Mm-hmm. So you you want to stay home a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I definitely encourage those patients to establish care with a mental health care provider because any work that they had done on their agoraphobia, which for people who are listening, it's severe social anxiety and don't want to leave the house. They have a lot of anxiety about leaving the house and leaving their uh, immediate environment. So if they've already done a lot of work to kind of combat those, then something like COVID could really cause them to regress. So, you know, um, whether they're in the um, LGBTQI community or not, it's really important that, you know, people keep continue to work on their uh, mental health goals, especially during COVID. Definitely. <laughs> Um, Definitely. Yeah. Cool. I've also seen um, in the, this is a little off topic, but in the beginning of the pandemic, I saw a lot of maybe college students and their, their roommates just left. They, they went to stay with family. Mm -hmm. They, um, they had supportive people to go home to. And some of my clients, especially college students, were left at home alone with no roommates because they didn't have the support of family to go home to. Mm-hmm. 
and that created a lot of loneliness and isolation was when your you know your roommates have just kind of jumped ship mm-hmm. and and you're you're there yeah and probably feeling abandoned mhm yeah mhm yeah that's horrifying because there's a lot of people that couldn't go home right yeah. Right. Or that we're actually forced to, and then they're back in this like hostile living environment. Yeah, that was, that's definitely been an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is people who were forced to move back home. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially clients who um, had just gotten to the point where they were ready to transition and then they moved back home and they had to put things on pause. Mm-hmm. That was really hard for people. Mm-hmm. Speaking of being forced to move back home, it's kind of, we're kind of approaching Thanksgiving holidays. And um, I know it's going to be a little different this year with COVID, mm-hmm. but traditionally the week after Thanksgiving is one of my busiest, busiest weeks of sessions mm. because clients have gone back home yeah. um, for their family and they come back and they're just super stressed because mm-hmm. of things that have happened. Um, things their family have told them or, you know, being with people who are unsupportive or even if their family is supportive, maybe they chose Thanksgiving as the time to come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people forget the holidays are not fun for everybody. <laughs> they can be really right. stressful. Definitely. Definitely. So I don't know what it's going to be like this year with Thanksgiving and COVID, but I do know that um, I wrote a blog several years ago about coping skills during the winter holidays. And I know one of the things I said was that, you know, it's okay to leave the table if you're, mm-hmm. if you're with your family members and the conversation goes astray and you're not comfortable. It's okay to get up and say, mm-hmm. you know, I need to, I need to be excused for a few minutes and just be in your own space and calm down. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's really important because sometimes you can forget just that little piece of freedom to get away from an uncomfortable situation. You feel kind of trapped, like it's okay, get up and walk away and take a breather. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, don't, don't keep yourself in a miserable situation. Mm -hmm. Um, People always, I think a lot of times people forget that they need to protect their own mental health, especially people when they're talking, talking about their parents they feel bad about how their parents feel about their transition, but in reality, they need to put themselves first and protect their own mental health. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but then again, that goes back to constantly wanting parental approvement, uh, uh, like acceptance and being, you know, them approving of their decision to uh, transition. And when you don't have that, it can again cause turmoil, but especially around the holidays. Especially, too, when you're going to be seeing potentially extended family. That might happen less this year. But in general, you're going to be seeing extended family who've just heard about your transition but maybe haven't seen you since you started. It can be extremely nerve-wracking to be around those people and maybe feel like you're on parade. Oh, certainly, yeah. Again, I don't know what it's going to be like this year. But with my clients, I usually start prepping clients for Thanksgiving in, in October, Mm -hmm. um, we start talking about coming home, you know, the expectations of family, Mm -hmm. um, how they feel about how their extended family feels. You know, I have clients that say that it's okay 
if they don't see their extended family again. And that kind of hurts me because I'm pretty close to my family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I just hope that I hope families can come around and that, um, that clients can experience family togetherness. Mm-hmm. But I know that it's the reality that sometimes they can't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they're just never going to be able to get onto um, a mutual place where they can respect each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then again, on the opposite, on the opposite spectrum, if a client comes home to their family and the extended family are all affirming and it's just like, oh, okay, well, that's good to know now. That's great. Yeah. And they start <laughs> using the name pronouns or at least they try. Yeah. You know, and if at least they try, then, um, then that's a great experience for clients. Right. So I don't always want to paint it in this in this negative picture. Sometimes I do have clients that come home for Thanksgiving and everybody's surprisingly surprisingly cool. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And obviously that's best case scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's best case scenario. Yeah. Um it's funny a lot of my clients they um a lot of my clients are worried about telling their grandmother. Mhm. And um it's funny because there was a time where every so often I'd have a client that was just worried about telling their grandmother and worried about telling their grandmother. And it turns out that their grandmother was the most affirming person in their family. Yes. You know, their grandmother would be like, oh, honey, I love you anyway. It's, right. You know, don't worry about that. Right. Or I've often had clients who worry about the same thing. And then they come back and they're like, yeah, I told my grandma and they said that they already knew. Oh, yeah. Like, because they just know them that well, that like they weren't surprised. Like, I already knew. I, I, you weren't. I wasn't surprised. Yeah. You know, I've known you since you're a baby. I was just waiting for you to tell me, you know. Mm-hmm. And that is yeah. even more like heartwarming because it's like not only are they affirming, but they also know the person so well that they knew and they were just kind of waiting until they felt comfortable to come out, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. And cool. So um, before we wrap up, do you have anything that you want the community to know or any words of wisdom or anything that you want to share with them? Um, let me think. I guess... Several, I mean, there's a few things that come to mind. The biggest thing, you touched on it a little earlier, and I touched on it a little earlier, mm-hmm. is that, you know, you are your own authority of who you are. Mm-hmm. And even if, even if a client is coming to me for a letter, I don't look at it as a judging process. I don't look at it as, I'm judging this person to see whether or not they're transgender Mm -hmm. Um, because that's not what it is. Right. You know, I'm making sure that the person is mentally stable enough to make informed consent. Mm -hmm. Um, But I accept, you know, and I, I affirm and I welcome and I'm happy about clients knowing who they are. Mm -hmm. So that's a really big thing. And then also, you know, like you said earlier, therapy doesn't necessarily have to be about you discovering your gender identity. Mm-hmm. Therapy can be about who you are as a whole person. You know, it might take time to, to find a therapist that clicks with you. You know, it might take a time or two. 
-hmm. if someone goes to a therapist and maybe they're not quite affirming or they just weren't a good fit, Mm -hmm. um, I want people to know that, you know, that's not the time to stop the process of finding a therapist. Right. Keep working at it. Keep trying to find a good fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because in the long run, it will be worth it once you do find that person. Right, right. I mean, I have clients that have been in therapy for a year or two with me and and it's because, you know, it's because we're a good fit and, and things come up throughout the year. Mm-hmm. You know, once you work on one thing, you discover something else about yourself that you want to move towards. Mm-hmm. Um, goals always change and people grow. Mm-hmm. And as people grow, they can grow through therapy. Right. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if this episode is going to air before Atlanta Pride this year. But um, I am. A, um, it's my fourth year sponsoring Atlanta Pride, so I'm really excited about that. What does that look like now this year? Oh, um, so it's going to be virtual. It's going to be over Saturday and Sunday, the weekend of Saturday and Sunday, mm-hmm. and they're going to have events. Um, it's all going to be through Zoom and there's going to be events. They're still going to have um, the fun events and the, the music and whatnot. And then the marketplace booth that I usually have set up, um, I'm usually at Atlanta Pride with mm-hmm. a bunch of narwhals um, at my booth. And um, it's going to be virtual. So I'll have a commercial and some virtual brochures and then Saturday from 1 to 5 p.m. people can pop in a Zoom room and talk to me. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad you you brought that up. Yeah. I didn't realize. um, I mean, I knew that they had gone to a virtual platform, but it's kind of hard to imagine how that was going to be executed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad that they've been able to do that. It looks looks really cool. I've seen the back end of what the virtual pride is going to look like this year, and it's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, definitely make sure you send me information to that and so that we can put that at the end of this episode so people can find out how to connect with you on the virtual pride. Yeah. And then um, I guess the other thing to say is that if anyone wants to reach out to me, email is a great way. People can make appointments any time of the day or night on my website, online. And I'm always willing to hop on a brief phone call with people to see if we're a good fit. Awesome. As like kind of a screening process for both of you. Yeah. 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 And that's harking back to the, how do you make sure somebody's an affirming gender therapist? Any therapist um, should be willing to hop on a five, 10 minute, 15 minute phone call with you Mm -hmm. um, so that you can ask them questions and kind of, uh, not maybe interview it, I guess is a good word, but see if they're a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's important. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Katie. I really enjoyed speaking with you. And I think that everyone's going to really love everything you had to say and offer a lot of really good information for people. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's no problem. Remember, everybody, stay fierce and live your truth. <laughs>